I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, to chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Let's read the Word of God together. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thus far the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. Maybe I can stay in the shade a little bit. This morning as we come to the close of chapter 8, We've already heard the Apostle Paul teach us glorious and wonderful truths about the spiritual life of Christians. Also about living as a child of God, and about the love of God which saves sinners, and about the eternal and powerful nature of God's saving love to us. And here as we approach the last few verses, Paul is concerned to draw our minds to the personal application of all that he has taught. And he does so in a very unique way. And as we read it, you may have caught this. He asks four specific questions which center around a Christian's sense of their assurance of salvation. And so I'm going to give you these four questions that structure this passage. The first, who can be against us? The second, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? The third... Who is to condemn? The fourth, who shall separate us from the love of God? And as we go to pursue this, I want to point something out to you, is that the Apostle Paul in all of these questions asks, Who, not what? Who, not what? And that is pertinent, because what he is saying is that there is a who. There is someone who would undercut and come against the people of God to uproot their assurance. You may ask, who is that? We could say the world in general, but I think he's talking about spiritual warfare. 
I think he's talking about the spiritual enemy who is Satan, who comes against the people of God, and his greatest, most delightful attack to his own heart is to try to cause us to believe that God does not love us anymore, nor can he love us. One of my friends, David Strain, he offered this outline, which I think is so clear in the Scripture uh, that you'll be able to see it. And these will be our points uh, for these four questions. So the very first of them in verses 31 and 32, opposition. 31, 32, opposition. Verse 33, accusation. Accusation. Verse 34, condemnation. Condemnation. And then in verse 35, separation. Separation. So we're going to take those in sequence. And then you may say, but come on, Pastor, what about 36 through 39? Those are the closing answers that speak to each of the four questions. We're going to study those, but it won't be in sequence. It's going to be as a closing comment. So just so you know the structure of how we're going to proceed. So the Apostle Paul, as he's written to the church, all these truths, all of chapter 8, it's as if he takes a moment close to the end of this chapter and simply breathes out. And he thinks deeply. And the Apostle Paul, as he's writing, he's, he's not preaching, however, he is a preacher. And he is concerned that the things that he preaches should affect the mind and the heart. They should come off the page and affect the soul of the people of God. And so in verse 31, he begins, What shall we say to these things? It's the so what question. All right, pastor, I've heard all of that. I've heard the theological lecture. So what? Who cares? How can those things, if they are true, impact me? And how can I get my arms and my heart around them? And so then he launches into the questions. Verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? What Paul is doing is he is drawing our attention to the question of the favor of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? And something I want to note, just so you don't have a moment of confusion, is that it is not a question of if God is for us. He's being rhetorical. In fact, you might state it in another way. Because God is for us. It's a rhetorical device. There's no question. It's not a hypothetical if, but rather taken as absolutely sure. You may restate this. God is for us. Now who could possibly be against us? And would it matter at all? And so it's this question of God's favor. To simply know that God is concerned for you, that He is in your corner, that He cares about you as His child, that His heart is wrapped around the concern of Emily and Ty and around Tony and around all of the people of God, whether it's Nick or Owen, whether it's Hermon or whether it's Ryan. It's God being for you, invested in you. And the whole question that He says is before us is how can you know? And why is He bringing that to us? Well, it's because it's Satan's favorite first attack. He wants to ask you, how can you know that God is for you? How can you be sure that God would love you? How can you be sure that God is not your enemy? 
How can you be sure? And so there are these two different ways that Satan wants to get at this question of the favor of God in the hearts and the lives of God's people. The first of them is Satan's attempt to contort why God is for you. And he does this by external things very often. And even our own sinful hearts likewise would delight to do the very same thing. So if we're asked the question, how do you know that God is for you? How do you know he has favor for you? A person might say, well, I know he has favor for me. Look at all the wonderful things he's given me. And you may say very good things. Your heart may say, look, he loves me. He's given me the blessing of a wife. Amen. It's a provision of God. You may say, I know that God loves me. He's given me children. They're a gift from God. Absolutely. Absolutely they're a gift from God. You may say, the Lord has kept me employed. He's always put clothes on my back and food on my table. Pastor, you even prayed about that. I can know that God has favor for me through that. Those are evidences of the favor of God. But those are all things that can be taken from you, aren't they? One car wreck. One bad diagnosis, one kidnapping, one loss of a job, one change of the economy, one spark burns the whole house down. So many things can happen and take those wonderful material blessings that God is pleased to give so many of his people. It can take them from you and you can be left asking the question, if those were marks that proved to me that God was for me, that it very much seems that now he is against me. And so, church, we should simply know that God is for us. And Paul's in a minute going to give us a reason why that is. He's going to direct us to something that is far more and far more perfect than just the externals of blessings that God is pleased to give us. The second way that Satan likes to attack us and to undercut the question of God's favor is that he wants to tell us that God could not possibly before you. So he may ask you the question again, how do you know that God is for you? Are you sure that he is? And then where is Satan going to turn? What's he going to point to? Well, he's going to point to the rigors of religion, most likely, whether you have them or whether you don't have them. Some people might say, I know that God is for me. I know that I have his favor. Why? I pray five times a day. I read my Bible. I'm much holier at least than my neighbor. I haven't failed or I haven't sinned. I haven't done the five different things that my co-workers have done. I'm living a relatively holy life. And some of you may say, well, I'm Protestant. Well, I'm Presbyterian. Well, I'm Reformed. Well, I'm catechized. Well, I'm educated. And I've read this stack of books. God's simply got to be impressed with that. That has to be some ground of favor. And so you look to the performance of your own heart, or in an inverse way, Satan would say, look at the things you haven't done. How could God have favor for you? You don't read your Bible five times a day. You don't pray often. You aren't holier than your unbelieving neighbor. You failed last week and today. You failed on the way to church. You're a sinner. You're terrible. God can't have favor for you. It's a Christian. It's not just the externals of blessings that in no way can form for you the very foundation of the love of God and His favor to you, but likewise the exercises of religion 
Because you may have good seasons where you succeed and bad seasons where you fail. And in every case, Satan will point to you. You, you are the reason why God would love you and why he would have favor to you. Paul answers the question of how we can know that God does have favor for us, that God is for us. In verse 32, he gives us that answer. The God who has favor for you, who is for you, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? How do you know that God has favor for you? Well, it's John 3.16. He loved you so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For the Christian, how can you know that God has favor for you? Paul says, look at the cross. Look at the cross. He put Christ on it for you. He loved His eternal Son who was perfect in Himself, who deserved the love and delight of God. He put Him on the cross for you who could never deserve the love of God as a sinner. He loved you that much. He has so much favor for you that He didn't even withhold His Son. He gave you the best gift, the most prolific gift, the Christ, His Son whom He loves. If He gave you Him, don't you know that He'll give you all things? Don't you know that it is not only that you have favor, but that His smile of grace shines upon you from moment to moment? It's not dependent on you that the Lord would have favor for you, but on Christ and on the eternal heart of love that God has for you, Christian. So don't for a second take the bait of Satan. Don't go down the path that your heart would want to go to kill your assurance Look at the cross and think on the heart of the Father for you. Then in verse 33, we come to the accusation. The accusation. Paul asked the question, Who will bring any charge against God's elect? And so you move from simple opposition to the accusation. And I think Christians understand this, at least in some sense, don't you? Most of you probably, hopefully, have not yet endured slander for the sake of your faith, but some of you have. You know what it is to be called names, to not be promoted because of your faith in Christ, to be hated by friends whom you once were so close with, but now, because you won't go and do the things that they like to do that are against the Father in heaven, that they have cut you off and brought an accusation against you. Oh, he's a Bible thumper. He's religious. She's, well, she thinks she's better than all of us are. Maybe they even bring an accusation. He thinks he's holy. She thinks she's holy. But the things that they used to do, the things that they have done, those things, those things really matter. Don't you remember who they once were? Don't you remember all of the things that they did against God? They're nothing but a hypocrite and the accusation falls upon you. I know that accusation. I know that accusation. But what Paul has in view is not really or simply... Those outward or external attacks, the accusations that anybody in the world might bring against you. But I think very specifically, it is the accusation of who. It's the spiritual accusations of Satan that are brought against us. 
And I do think that whenever Paul speaks of this, he's talking very clearly and very sincerely about a testimony that could be both false or true. Satan loves to do this thing. Firstly, he loves to accuse you of deep sins that you may never have committed. For instance, what Christian can say that they've not had a deep, significant, and momentary doubt? I have, certainly. I'm sure that you have. Maybe even in the course of reading your Bible, you'll find yourself asking the question, is this thing true? Is this absolutely right? And you'll find yourself going down a very dark road, one that disturbs you, it bothers you, it really shakes you to your core to the point where you think, wow, you know, I don't ever really want to have that thought again. What would Satan say to someone like that? Well, I'll tell you that it has been the experience of many that Satan would say, even that momentary doubt, you've denied the Father entirely. You've abandoned Christ entirely. You've gone too far. You've done something that's unforgivable. You're guilty because of it. You've abandoned the faith. And you see what Satan does in that moment where he's whispering into your ears all these different things as he's trying to chip one little bit at a time against your sincere assurance that you belong to Christ and that you are no longer guilty before the Father. He wants you to feel overwhelmed with grief over your guilt so that you never, ever feel free to come to the Father who forgives the guilty and pours out grace for sinners. So that's one way he does it. He tries to expand or elevate or lie to you or really make your sins seem even bigger or even more heinous than they actually have been committed. But then on the other side of it, very honestly... Satan brings accusations that are real and true against you. You said this or that. You've done this or that. And he throws your sin in your face. He, he writes it plain and he makes it public and he makes it sting. Those things that you've committed and you think, Oh, I'm disgusted with myself over this. It's a burden for me to even consider the places that I've gone, the dark depths and the far departures. These things that are real and sincere, those things that ought to offend the heart of the Christian, Satan comes and he puts it right back in your face and he says, look, you are so guilty. There is not a chance, there is not a chance that you could be made clean. He wants us to wallow in our sin. He wants us to see Christ's cross as ineffectual for this sinner. Just a mere and trivial display of something that is so far from us. And what does Paul say to this? To the accusations, to the nagging testimonies, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're an enemy of God. What does Paul say? Well, he says in just a few words, it is God who justifies. That's his response. It's God who justifies, it's not you. It's God who justifies, who cleanses you from guilt. It's not the weight of things that you can do that are good. It's not the things that you need to do to tip the scale back in your favor. It's not the cleansing that you need to do to yourself. Another immersion, another cleansing, another festival, another deed, another act, another bowing, another season of prayer, another thing on top of another to just always be dealing with the sin. No, it is God who justifies. 
And God himself has declared, you are not guilty, child of God. God himself has declared you righteous in Christ. And he has already punished your sins in the flesh of his eternal son. It's God who justifies, Christian. Martin Luther regularly wrote about his experiences of debating with Satan. If you've ever read any of Luther, you don't get very far before you read him say something like, and this morning I was having a conversation with Satan and he accused Wingley. I thought it was a good argument, so I let him have the day. Things like that. But Luther also, whenever he was translating the Bible, was being assaulted again and again about his sin. And he writes that Satan accused him of being so sinful. Who did he think he was to translate this holy word of God. He's too filthy. He's too stained. It was a work well beyond him. And you may recall that during that same time of translation, Luther is famous for having thrown his inkwell at the wall at Satan, cursing at him and proclaiming the freedom that he has in his justified and faithful state with Christ. That's the same for us. That's what Paul would say. Will we come to the face of those accusations to say, oh yes, I'm far worse than you ever imagined. I've done that and I've even done more. I'll raise you ten. I'll tell you ten other things that I've done. I'll write it large because if you see my sin as great as it actually is, you'll have to see my Savior who is so much greater than all of my sins. It's not only that He has an abundance of grace and righteousness, but a superabundance and His grace abounds even much more as the Apostle Paul testifies in the book of Romans to us as children of God. It's God who justifies. The accusations just can't stand. Then in verse 34, we come to the fourth question, and that is that of condemnation. Paul simply asks, Who is to condemn? And friends, I think Satan wants nothing more than for you, as a Christian, to believe that God despises you, And is angry with you that you stand not only guilty but condemned. And that on the last day whenever you face your God because of the sins that you have committed in your life. Yeah, in spite of your faith in Jesus. That still you're going to suffer his wrath. The language of condemnation is the language of the courtroom. It's legal language, forensic. Okay, this is a thing to which you're accountable. It's the language of specified punishment. A person is condemned if they are found guilty and then assigned a specified punishment. And Satan wants you to simply think that God has sentenced you and will punish you, Christian, in spite of his promise for mercy and for grace. And what does the Apostle Paul say? How does he answer the question of condemnation? He says, Christian... Christ Jesus is the one who died. Jesus died. More than that, He who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So a moment ago, regarding the favor of God, He pointed us to the cross, and He does it once again, but He points us to even more. There are four things He points us to. I'm going to give you some theological terms, and then I'm going to um, explain them to you. The first of them is Paul says, in the face of the possibility of condemnation, propitiation is what you look at. God paid the price. 
God paid the price. Christ Jesus is the one who died. How can a person be condemned? How could they serve their penalty if it's already been served? That's Paul's point. If they say you've got 25 to life, Jesus has already suffered it. It's already been taken out against him. The penalty has been paid. Christ Jesus hung in your place. You can't hang on the cross. He's already had it. Christ Jesus already suffered the wrath of God for your particular sins particularly. Jesus experienced the wrath of God against all the things you have done, you are struggling with, and you will commit against the God of heaven. Jesus suffered them all, and he died in your place. Secondly, resurrection. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised If you don't believe that the condemnation has already been had, then look, Jesus didn't stay in the grave. The penalty was completely served. There was nothing else. He was raised from the dead. Jesus defeated our death. He took all of the penalty of the wrath of God against us. And there's simply nothing else. If the wrath of God is poured into a cup till it's full, And all of the wrath poured out, Jesus drank it every last drop and wiped it clean. Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. There is then, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then thirdly, ascension, this third thing that Paul looks to. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God. What is that? Look at where is he going with the ascension here that Jesus was raised from the earth and seated at the right hand of the Father. It's this that Jesus didn't only suffer for us in our place, the one who knew no sin to become sin for us, but that it was so dealt with that he was restored to God the Father in glory, spotless. He doesn't still bear up sin as if there's something yet to be poured out. No, he's there with the Father, the holy in the presence of the holy of holies. Jesus is with the Father. There's no division. He's near to him. Any unholiness and any sin just simply can't stand before his righteous gaze. Christ is at at the right hand of the Father. And then he goes on. It's not only the restoration But it's also intercession. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And what does he do in the midst of your sin and my sin? He pleads for us. As if he prays and he says, forgive him. Forgive her. Again and again and again. Father, don't look on this. Don't look at him. Don't look at how Nick has fallen down again. Don't look at the church, how they've fallen over again. Don't look at Covenant Fellowship Church and all of the mess that they owe They always find themselves in, oh Lord, look at me. Remember the cross. Remember what I did. Remember how I suffered. How all of your wrath was on me. Oh Lord, look at me and forgive them. These are my people that you have given to me as a bride and I have purchased them. Forgive them, oh Lord. Forgive them. Pour out grace. Pour out mercy. Give them redemption. I would say praise God and amen. This is what Paul says, don't you know Jesus died, was resurrected, is with the Father and is constantly pleading your case as a king redeeming his people. 
This third attack on the assurance of the people of God, separation. And really this in verse 35 is where all of these tactics are going. It's the, the ultimate hope. The Christian should be uh, worn down by opposition. Uh, that the Christian uh, should then be slandered by accusation. That the Christian should be afraid of condemnation to the point where they find themselves separated from God because they're afraid of the Lord. It's not this holy fear, but it's this unholy terror that would strike the heart of a person if Satan could be so successful against the Christian. Where he wants us to be convinced that God hates us. And that the love that he once professed to us has been withdrawn. And that there is any possibility of a Christian being divorced from the God who loves them and has redeemed them. In verse 35, Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes through this list, these things that often wear down the Christian heart. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... All of these things, whether they're internal, the distress of the heart, or external, all of the famine or nakedness or danger or sword that can come upon us, these things which make the Christian simply ask, if this is happening to me, then has God abandoned me? Has He turned His back on me? Am I no longer His? Has He forgotten me? Has He rejected me? You see, those are significant. And they are, I would say, terrible to the Christian heart. But they're not ultimate. And Paul asked the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? He then goes on and gives us an answer. In verse 36, he uh, cites Psalm 44, 22, I believe. And it's his word of assurance that Christians will suffer. He says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then verses 37 through 39 he gives us the answer to the question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? He says, no. No. In all these things, in tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, or dangerous sword, no, in all of those things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. It's Christ who loves us. It's His love. He has set His heart on us and He will not retract it even in the midst of all of these things. Instead, He causes us to be called conquerors as if we stand victorious over them. Paul goes on and gives us a word of assurance in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you hear that? The who has been defeated. Satan cannot defeat you. Moreover, you cannot separate yourself from the love of God. Nothing can separate you. Nothing, not wars, not spiritual powers, not famine, none of these things. None of these evidences, whether internal or external, none of these things can remove the loving heart of God for His people in Christ Jesus. But did you catch that? The love of God is particular 
to the work of Christ. It's in Christ. It's the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And why do I point that out to you? Well, it's this magnificent truth, Christian, that if Jesus has died for you and you have faith in Him, you are united with Him. He, He, in every way secures you in Himself. The Apostle Paul writes later that he even gives us the deposit guaranteeing our salvation, who is the Holy Spirit, he writes to the Ephesians. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, I just encourage you, don't be weak and don't be blown around. Don't take the bait. Don't let yourself fall into the slough of despair. Be a person before the face of God clothed in Christ that can simply say, even loudly, with Luther and with Paul, Satan, say what you will. I'm more of a sinner than you could ever accuse me of being, but I have more of a Savior than you could ever imagine. When I look at myself, I cannot imagine how I could be saved. When I look at Christ, I cannot imagine how I cannot be saved. In Him, and because of His heart, who loved me when I was unlovely, I know that I will always be secure. No one can snatch me from His hand. I can rest forever in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You that we could worship You, that we could hear Your Word that we could receive your ministry. Lord, I do pray that as we continue as a church to have time of fellowship and to close our time of worship here in just a few moments, that, Lord, you would bless us to think on these things and to talk on these things and to encourage one another. Oh, Lord, that we would simply know that the church is a body of redeemed sinners being made holy in the blood of her Lord. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name.